much. All right. Welcome to episode five of Plays Well with Others. I'm Jess Agnew, and I'm joined by the fantastic Andrew Moore. Um, Today, we're actually going to be spending some time recapping the conversation that we just had with Travis Sims, also known as T-Money and The Terminator. Um, We had a really great conversation last time talking about that subculture of superstition that exists within the microcosm of the technology world. So today, we kind of want to take that as a basis point and talk about some practical things you can consider when you're doing change management and planning for changes that can help you the superstition stuff be fun and not your only source of comfort. Yeah, beautiful intro, by the way. Um, everybody give Jess a shout out. It's her first time running the board. <laughs> so um, excellent work. And and I was nervous. You couldn't tell. You couldn't tell. So... <laughs> We like I said in my post when when we sat down with Travis, we we had this idea for a, a fun episode to talk about superstition, and we I, I won't say we we got lucky, but Travis definitely brought the heat with some some really good content around why superstitions yeah. live in addition to good technology work and good organizational leadership. And the thing that that came to mind was, you know, a lot of technologists, a lot of technology companies or technology teams do a better job than average about managing change because it's such an integral part of deploying change to to the environments, whether it's whether it's um, a, a code deployment or an infrastructure update or, or what have you, but. The thing that I find interesting is that that skill set isn't often as well developed amongst our our less technical cohorts because they don't have the same regular challenges. They don't go through that process very regularly. And so when we look at execution of these partner projects, the projects where you have a a non-technical team working with a technology team together to put something out into production, you you kind of have this opportunity to to train or to to bring that that non-technical team along for the ride and say, you know, these are these are all questions that we ask. We don't have to know the answer every time. And mm-hmm. Jess, I'm gonna hand it to you because you do this really well and have done it so many times. I think you could probably do it in your sleep at this point. But I really want to hear how you <laughs> developed the skill set to really drive change management from a, an execution. It's an interesting question. So coming into the technical jobs that I've had, I didn't actually have any prior technical experience. I had an affinity for it, which landed me in every company that I've ever worked in kind of slowly migrating my way over to the technology team just because of the affinity I have for the concepts and how it works. Um, But I don't personally have a technical background. And one of the things that I learned really early on in my career was how to stop and go, hey, can you help me wrap my arms around this? And that phrase right there, help me wrap my arms around this, became something that I would say almost all the time in conversations because you know, it's hard that first time where you're like, I don't know what's happening. But then when you stop and you start to really try and dig into it, that kind of started my journey on like, okay, being a 
you know, good at change management and how to document it and how to participate in it in an effective way. And I think that right there, learning, you want to learn it yourself. I want to understand every step that happens. I want to know who's doing it. I want to know how long it's going to take. I want to understand what it is that they're doing for me, for my own edification. But then that translates into, okay, we've got a run book that's really well documented. You have every step. You have the time it's going to take. You have who's responsible for it. Um, And then you have, you know, how do you roll it back? How do you deal with it if you have an issue? These were natural questions that I asked as a non-technical person wanting to enter into a technical world. And so, you know, I come from that in between already. So being able to break that down into layman's terms and, you know, easy to consume nuggets of what we were actually trying to accomplish, because it's always going to be more complicated that someone who's doing the work is going to understand better for sure. But I do think that that key right there of being able to translate the technical talk into steps that a non-technical person can understand is really crucial for kind of processing the information. And it's a it's a super important skill for technical people too. You're you're always going to have these opportunities to explain the the magic that that is what you do to somebody that that doesn't doesn't do it on a day to day basis or may legitimately think it's just magic. So being able to to explain what we can do, what's possible, allows you to have better conversations around how you provide value as a technologist. And you made a point that, that I wanted to call out because it's, it, it's always interesting to watch. So you, you brought up the process of generating runbooks and building out these robust plans for mm-hmm. executing a change. And... Almost every time I've seen it done, the first maybe one or two sessions or the first first few times a technical person is involved, they think, this is silly. I don't need to do this because I already know how I'm doing it. I'm just telling you what I'm doing. Yeah. But how many times, Jess, have in the process of generating yeah. the run book, you've heard that pause, that the pregnant pause and, oh, yeah, I forgot. I didn't think about that. Yep. And it's part of why it's important for you as the person who's doing the documentation to have spent the time to understand and really immerse yourself in what's happening. Because not always, but sometimes those pregnant pauses come from you going, hey, don't you need to do this first? Or, hey, didn't you mention last time or didn't when we did this last time, didn't we do this? And sometimes you can be the one who brings up those concerns and kind of drives the conversation a lot of times, though, it's just the engineer after they've kind of seen it on paper going, oh, actually, go back two steps. We need to add this in. Oh, wait, can you wait? Go back to that last page that we were on. <laughs> Did we do this? Um, thinking it through, really going line by line, just any human who's done this for anything that you've ever done. You know, you've seen those kids write down how to make a peanut butter sandwich and they get frustrated when you go, okay, you open the peanut butter jar, you stick the knife in and you put the knife in upside down and it makes the kids nuts because no, that's not the way to do it. Well, you didn't say that. And I'm not saying you have to be that insanely detailed on the run books, but it's a good demonstration of how you, unless you think about the process, you're going to miss steps. You're going to not fully get everything down that you need to do. Yeah. And that's a it's a really good metaphor, and what Jess is referring to about the the peanut butter sandwich. If you haven't seen it, someone and I, I don't recall who it was made a a video <laughs> about how to teach your kids how to code, and the point was 
development software engineering is explicit. When you write a program, um, you can't make assumptions. Or your, your computer isn't making assumptions, at least not yet. So it, the, it's, a, it's a cool video because they go through the process of, well, it's very easy to make a peanut butter sandwich. You take out the peanut butter, you put a knife in. Well, what happens if the knife goes in backwards? What happens if I've taken the peanut butter out? I haven't taken the lid off. I can't get the knife in the in the peanut butter jar. And it's maybe a, a reduction to absurdity, but it makes the point very It's effective. It is it is the interesting thing about about run books, and I, I don't want to focus only on run books, but they <laughs> they do offer this opportunity to collect all of the steps that go into executing a change successfully. And I want to focus kind of on the front end of those run books and how communication of change and definition of what is success, what is failure, what, what triggers the, the, the back out strategy or the rollback strategy, Mm -hmm. all of those details are often left by the wayside. And at the the la- last organization I was a part of, I was responsible for implementing and, and improving a change management strategy across the enterprise. And the the pushback that I always got was, why do I need so many details in order to standardize a change? And those details were fairly straightforward. I was looking for you know, how do you implement the change? What's the value of the change? Who implements the change? Not specifically, but the the role. And then most notably for what I wanted to talk about is what is your rollback strategy and what triggers the rollback strategy? Yes. Because again, and Jess, I want to I want to hear your your perspective, but I think everyone has likely been on a a change or an outage call or a a maintenance window at two in the morning and you hear the uh oh <laughs> and you have an issue you identify the issue and you start looking at it because i'd love to fix it because it's blocking the rest of the change and then an hour goes by where are we i still don't know i'm still looking two hours goes by you're getting progressively more loopy because it's three in the morning and yeah. you haven't slept in two days being able to identify very clearly and very succinctly when we identify a breaking issue, we will research for X amount of time. Mm-hmm. We'll research for one hour or research for 30 minutes, and then we will make a decision of rollback or not. And I want to hear what your thoughts are, Jess, on how to best identify those triggers Because you've seen so many of these where you've had to hand off the the outage because it's daylight now. Or, you know, you've been dug into this thing for so long and we've got customers that are that are wanting to log in and we're we're not back online again. Yep. Yeah, it's a it's a never a cut and dry scenario. That's for sure. Every time you kind of only you make the best decision you can with the information you have at the time. And. I do personally, I work backwards from when's the moment that we have to have this up, you know, for our customers, when when is that time? Okay, what's the longest it's ever taken us to boot everything back up? Okay, let's back up from there. Okay, what's the longest it's going to take to do the rollback plan that we did for this one step? Okay, let's back it up from there. 
And that time, that's your drop dead date. That's your drop dead time of, okay, if it's not fixed at this moment, then we have to fix it. We have to roll it back. We have to start the process. And I think it's really important that you communicate that early and often to the engineers on the call, because it can be really, especially if you're doing them overnight, it can be really emotional. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but it can be very emotional for the engineers that are responsible for the changes because they want to make this work. They want to do their job. They want to have a success. And so if you're not communicating clearly to them, hey, like you have 45 minutes to review and then we're going to circle back and we're going to check our status. Okay, we've checked our status. We're not done yet. You think it could be 10 minutes, but you don't have a clear idea yet. Okay, you have 15 minutes to make the fix. If you can't get it done, we're going to we're going to make the call to roll back. And it just communicating clearly, communicating often and really giving yourself the conservative time that you need to get things stood back up, I think is unfortunately it's it's the way you need to go. There there's going to be exceptions to those where you know, there's a hard deadline due to regulations or failing equipment or things like that, where you power through and you just get it done, you roll forward. And that's where if you start to see problems, you don't start talking about your rollback strategy. You start talking about minimum viable product. What needs to be up in order for us to be healthy? What can we, what's a small, what's the smallest increment of issues that we can have with a consistent smallest amount of issue we can have while still being up and running, if that makes sense. So it's just a different conversation. I'm actually getting stressed, like thinking about this, thinking about all the times that we've had just these things happen. (laughs) And Travis made a really good point that I don't want to gloss over either, which was as a developer and and as an engineer in, in most practices, you can make a lot of decisions during the daylight early on. You can make a lot of decisions that allow your application, allow your platform to be more resilient to change so that your, your deployment is a a single button click and your rollback is a single button click or, you know, borrowing the the DevOps mentality with, with CICD with continuous deployment, the more that you automate, the less you have to to watch, the less you have to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And a really good example that, that I was a part of at, at a, another company was implementing continuous deployment and implementing a truly automated deployment process. We had an application stack that was very difficult to deploy. There were a lot of interconnected pieces, a lot of a lot of spider webs that that all had to be orchestrated just so for for the application to boot up and that that's so common with with just about every legacy application or or app stack that's been around for for 5 or 6 years yeah. you make decisions over time that that at some point just make things more difficult as the the system grows but we were we were traveling. I was traveling with one of the one of my other DevOps engineers, and we had a we had a deployment at you know we deployed before before business hours. I think it was four or five a.m. Eastern, and the uh, we'd been working with with Ansible to automate a lot of these steps because, like I said, it has to be orchestrated just so. And the the DevOps engineer that was responsible for executing the deployment wanted to to have a truly 
unattended deployment at some point. So we were we were fooling around with the scheduling with an Ansible Tower, and so he he scheduled the deployment. Kicked off was supposed to kick off at four a.m. Eastern, whether somebody was there or not, and I was waiting down in the hotel lobby at you know seven thirty or so, waiting to go to the the office and catch a catch an Uber, and engineer comes down and I said, Hey, how'd the, how'd the deployment go? And he looks at me, the eyes get really big. Oh, I forgot about that. And I said, you did, <laughs> you, you forgot about it, did you? And so we, we run over to the the little hotel restaurant, open, he opens his laptop. We look at it. Oh, deployment went out. It sent the, the team's message that everything was good. It ran the smoke tests. <laughs> there were QA and other engineers and everybody else is online. DevOps engineer never joined. We said, oh, well, it did what it was supposed to do. It was successful. It just ran. Oh so that was a long story all to say that when you have opportunities, as you can build systems that are more resilient, that can be automated and you build out the automation that makes quality of life easier, but it also makes the system more available, more stable, because I can run deployments and have confidence that they're going to go they're well. going to go. <laughs> and you don't have to show up for it, which is awesome. Right. Whether, <laughs> whether you like it or not. So exactly. I do want to The more talk deployments I can sleep through, the better. Exactly. <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit about understanding the different steps along the way and how that can sometimes, not sometimes, I think always be a benefit to those involved in it. And I'm not saying that, you know, a developer needs to fully understand the role of operations or that operations needs to understand exactly what QA is doing. But I am saying that there's a part that every different component of technology plays down to the help desk. And it's beneficial when you function as an entire technological team rather than, okay, development's done, we're going to throw it to QA. QA is done, we're going to throw it to this team. This team's done, we're going to throw it to them. Okay, it's in production, now it's Ops' turn. They have to get up and support this in the middle of the night. And okay, well, nobody told Help Desk about the change, so they're just confused at why 30 customers are calling <laughs> and complaining. So it's really important <laughs> that you orchestrate a deployment or orchestrate change collectively as a technology team. And everybody respects the value add that each group is providing and is, I guess, to a certain extent, understanding of the part that they, in the part and the value that they play in that execution, if that makes sense. Yes. And one of my favorite quotes is a, a Linus Torvald's quote. And he said, I'm, I'm not going to get it completely right verbatim, but he, he said something to the effect that everyone should understand one layer of abstraction lower than where you spend most of your time working. Like so that. as an example, if I am a, if I'm a de software developer, then I need to know generally how the application server functions that my code runs on. I need to know how the OS functions and how the, how the, the machine or the the host is going to to behave with my changes or with my my application. Yeah. If I am an operations person that is managing the OS level, then I need to have a general understanding of the infrastructure that my my guests are running on for virtual machines, or I need to understand generally how the the cloud environment is configured, and and that works for just about everybody. And the reason I like it so much is because it, it 
puts accountability on us as technologists, us as people to take ownership of our job, of our product. And it also encourages us to, to know how is my product going to be supported, whether that's from a, a technical perspective or from a, a people perspective. Gives me more respect for the person that's getting the the Ops Genie page at 3 a.m. that says, hey, your health check failed four times in a row. And I, I can't stress that enough. So developers listening, if you're a developer, if you're a project manager, if you're an operations engineer analyst, any of those roles, learn the, the layer of abstraction deeper so that when you're in these these changes when you're in these conversations one you can be respectful and have an intelligent conversation with the person that is probably already a little irritated that you, your application woke them up <laughs> but you can get to the root cause faster yeah. and i'm going to circle it all the way back around to what jess said first which was when when digging through change management asking questions asking leading questions if you know a little bit about a lot, you can ask better questions. Exactly. And that's been my experience. I've, I've spent a lot of time with some very smart infrastructure engineers. I'm not an infrastructure guy, but I can ask questions like, hey, I, we've had a routing issue in, in this particular data center before. Are we sure that's not the problem today? Or, hey, these... The, the Cisco firewalls have started randomly blocking certain traffic before. Are we sure that's not the problem today? And, and it gives you that rapport and at least lets people know that you care enough to know a little bit. And I've never had an engineer from any area get mad at me if I've asked them if they could explain to me a little bit about how our ecosystem is set up or configured or whatever. Generally, they're appreciative of it. Generally, I'm the first project manager or product owner that's cared enough to ask. Um, and that can actually open your eyes to how what you're doing on the product side, de designing these new products that are going to go into production. When you start to look at it from the holistic standpoint, you start to understand how what you're building in development is then going to be supported by operations, is, this, is then going to be, you know, handled by the help desk when a customer calls in and you start to get a better understanding of how you can contribute to a more stable product as a whole. And I can't stress enough how important those kind of forgotten areas of technology are, including security, including op um, infrastructure, those things that we just kind of, as a product owner, sometimes you just put a blinder onto them. You're like, well, those don't matter. Oh my God, they matter. <laughs> I can't stress enough how much they matter. Um, they, I get it. They're magic. They're complicated. They're hard to understand. And to Andrew's point, I have talked to some of the smartest people I know are infrastructure engineers. And there are times where I'm like, hey, you're talking uh, way up here. I'm going to need you to bring it down like 27 layers of complexity <laughs> for me to understand anything you're talking about. But once I do have a broad idea of what they're talking about, now all of a sudden what I do can be more relevant and be more supportive of what they're doing. So instead of me throwing problems at them, I'm collaborating with them and we're coming up with a solution that fits all of us and is only therefore serving our customers better. Interesting.
Yeah. And having that conversation really opens up the door for making it clear why we're all here. It's very easy for people that aren't involved in the day-to-day, or let me rephrase, it's very easy for people to get involved in only their job and forget that there's a bigger purpose. Mm -hmm. And that can be kind of your top-level company mission or vision, or it can be you know, we, we work together to provide this feature set or this, this product or, or whatever, so that whether it's internal people are are more efficient, or if it's the, you know, in, in the healthcare situation, we're, we're providing improved outcomes. We're improving, we're providing improved patient experience or, you know, in mortgage, like today, we're, we're helping people get into homes or, or, you know, make renovations or buy that property that they've always wanted. There's, there's the opportunity as you start speaking the same language and start really caring legitimately about what people do, how they do it and why they do it. That allows you to have better conversations around the, the whole value statement of whatever your company's doing and looking at, digital transformation and and putting a nice bow on this conversation. I think it's been one of the the more I won't say productive ones, but <laughs> one of the more closely aligned to the mission of the podcast. But <laughs> as you start having the conversations not just at like senior leadership level, you start building a culture all the way throughout your organization of individuals that are uniquely dedicated to serving whoever your customer is. And if you can do that, then you're 90% of the way towards digital. You're you're taking what it is that each of these people bring to the table, each of these functions, each of these skill sets, you're taking whatever they bring to the table and you're applying it directly and in a distributed way to your company's mission and goal. And at that point, you're... You're, you're just making sure that the, the train stays on the tracks. You're, you're able to step up and be more innovative because you don't have to worry about managing the minutiae or the day-to-day. You have an excellent team that are all dedicated to making sure that that functions well every single day. Most nights, it's, it's, it's incredible to see when it works really well. And if you could figure out how to make it work across your entire company and not just in pockets, well, you'd, you'd be off to the races. You'd be great. Exactly. So we are, we are coming up on time. This has been episode five of plays well with others. Again, thank you, Jess, for the, the intro, make sure to give her some, some shout outs in the comments. Let's keep her <laughs> engaged as the, the point person. And, um, thanks for listening.